Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. In 2019, the New York Times reported on Haiti's hardships with a story headlined, There is no hope. Crisis pushes Haiti to brink of collapse. The no hope phrase was a real, partial quote from a source, a despairing young woman in one of Haiti's most difficult areas. And the story wasn't lying about babies dying in underserved hospitals or schools closed or people killed in protests or people with jobs going unpaid, roadblocks, blackouts, hunger, and deep, deep stress in a country in severe crisis. But further into that story was another quote from that young woman's mother who told the New York Times, quote, it's not only that we're hungry for bread and water, we're hungry for the development of Haiti, close quote. As Counterspin noted at the time, there is a difference between there is no hope and there is no hope under this system. And to the extent that U.S. news media purposefully ignore that difference and portray Haiti as a sort of of outside-of-time tragic case and ignore the role that U.S. intervention has played throughout history in order to push for that same sort of intervention again, well, that's where you see the difference between elite corporate media and the actually independent press corps that we need. We'll talk to Jake Johnston from the Center for Economic and Policy Research about what elite news media are calling for right now as a response to Haiti's problems versus what Haitians are calling for. Also on the show, is racial discrimination over in the U.S.? Do universities and colleges already reflect the range of inclusion and diversity a democracy demands such that they should stop even thinking about whether they're admitting the sort of students they expressly excluded just decades ago. These questions are in consideration at the Supreme Court, though you might not know it from media coverage. Instead, you may have heard about a fair-minded white guy who just, in his heart, wants Asian Americans to get a fair shot at the Ivy League against all those undeserving black kids unfairly leveraged by affirmative action. We'll talk about SFFA versus Harvard with Jeannie Park, founding president of the Asian American Journalists Association in New York and co-founder of the Coalition for a Diverse Harvard. That's coming up and we're going to get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. In July 2022, the Washington Post editorial board declared that the assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moise put the country at risk of anarchy, which, the paper explained to its readers, quote, poses an immediate humanitarian threat to millions of Haitians and an equally urgent diplomatic and security challenge to the United States and major international organizations. Swift and muscular intervention is needed, 
close quote. In October, the Post ran an editorial headlined, Yes, Intervene in Haiti and Push for Democracy. Well, a lot of seventh grade government students would pause at that point and wonder how other countries' intervention, a remarkably unexamined term, in a sovereign nation, much less their muscular intervention, could lead to democracy. But the idea that the U.S. or an international community presumably guided by the U.S. is the monitor, arbiter, and exemplar of something called democracy is a corporate news media staple. And media observers know that once this country is at something it calls war, dissenting critical views are ignored or worse. So while the U.S. is deciding how to involve itself in Haiti's hardships right now, it's important to think about what we know, what we should know, and what maybe we aren't hearing about what would actually help Haitian people right now. We're joined by Jake Johnston, Senior Research Associate at the Center for Economic and Policy Research and lead author for SEPR's Haiti Relief and Reconstruction Watch blog. He joins us by phone from D.C. Welcome back to Counterspin, Jake Johnston. Thanks for having me. Well, I just want to let you go with this. We're very much in media's rest as we record on November 3rd. There was a letter signed by SEPR and some 90 other groups, including the American Friends Service Committee, Church World Service, Haitian Bridge Alliance, Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti. And folks can also read Jane Regan's piece on FAIR.org that points to opposition to foreign military intervention by many civil society and grassroots groups in Haiti. So Let me just start you with a big picture question. Why are we seeing so many calls for Haiti's problems to be addressed like a nail that can only be solved with a hammer, you know? And why are corporate media so invested in that response? Yeah, look, I think when you look at the situation in Haiti today, and make no mistake, the situation on the ground is extremely dire, right? I mean, people are facing uh, serious hardships, right? From food insecurity, from uh, violence and insecurity, a lack of fuel and basic supplies. Uh, and I think there's there's a, a sort of desire or, or a an approach uh, that you see in the media often, which treats this all as a recent development. You know, the Washington Post editorial is a good example, saying that the assassination of the president last year is what sort of has caused this situation. Right. And so it's looking at it in terms of a very short timeline. And I think it's far more useful to sort of see this as a much larger phenomenon, something that has slowly developed and transpired over many, many years. I think this is really key to understanding this call for foreign intervention as well, because the reality, right, is it's easy to look at the situation and say, oh, Haiti must be this failed state that needs outside help. But if you take that longer view, you realize that the situation today on the ground is the situation because of so many prior interventions, right? We can't separate these things. And you have to have that understanding to, to look into the future and say what, what's necessary for the next steps. Well, this letter also notes a foreign intervention has led to very concrete and documentable problems 
in Haiti caused by U.S. troops. There's a reason to just say, first of all, maybe this isn't the first thing that we want to do, right? Of course. And if you look at that legacy, you can look at some of the more concrete things, right? The introduction of cholera by U.N. peacekeepers after the earthquake in 2010. You could look at many decades of sexual abuse, of rape, you know, of extrajudicial killings, right? I mean, the, the list goes on, right? But I think it's also important to look at a different aspect of that foreign intervention, which is the political effects of it. And I think, you know, looking at the situation in Haiti today, I think everyone agrees that many of these problems are at their core political. And so if we consider that, right, we look at the political situation is what it is, largely because of the role of foreign powers controlling Haiti and Haiti's democracy, right? It's not because the Haitian people have had a say in how their country has been governed for, for many, many years. And so that's really important, right, in terms of determining what comes next and looking at what might be the implications of an intervention today. And I think this is especially important because, you know, you mentioned the piece from Jane Regan. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's an excellent analysis and making a key point, right? The request for foreign military assistance is coming from a de facto prime minister who has no real legitimacy or popular mandate, but in fact was made prime minister after a tweet from foreign embassies urging him to form a government weeks after the assassination of the president, right? And so this is a really important dynamic to understand. And, you know, I think it's one reason why you've seen such opposition to uh, this request for military intervention is that it's seen as an effort to continue to prop up this unelected de facto prime minister. I feel like there are a lot of folks who are trying to be critical, progressive leftists in the U.S., and they just don't know what the heck to think about Haiti. And it has to do with this idea of the U.S. must intervene. The U.S. must do something because, of course, the U.S. has to do something and the idea of the U.S. not doing something is like off the page, is completely off the page. And I just wonder, what would a conversation look like about allowing Haiti to be Haiti? Like, what would that even include? Who, whose voices would that include? Who would we hear that we're not hearing? Who would we stop hearing from that we're hearing? You know, I think you can go two ways with this. On the one hand, you know, we're talking about this sort of question of military intervention, right? I think there's an assumption by those folks saying, well, the U.S. must act. There's also an assumption behind that, that the U.S. can act successfully, right? That yeah. they're motivated for the right reasons and doing this for the right reasons and can succeed at what they're saying those reasons are. But that takes a lot of assumptions that we're making, right? And I think it's important to, first off, assess those assumptions. <laughs> so when we look at the history of foreign intervention in Haiti, when does that usually happen? Yes, the situation might be chaotic and difficult on the ground, but it's usually the sort of elite calling in foreign troops to basically protect their interests, right? And so we have to understand those dynamics and those power dynamics in terms of what's motivating this today. And what's motivating the situation on the ground, right? I think, you know, and I wrote a piece about this, but you know, I think it's naive to think that there aren't actors in Haiti stoking violence and, and this humanitarian crisis in order to justify 
a foreign military intervention, which they see as their best way to maintain their power, status, and influence over the political and economic system in Haiti. Now, what's at the root of so much of what we're seeing in, in Haiti, and it gets to your second question, right, is this question of, of who has a say and, and who's actually included in that state, right? And I think for a very, very long time, you've had a Haitian state, which has not actually been inclusive and in, has incorporated the vast majority of the population. The most visible manifestation of this is, is just the turnout in the last presidential election, the last couple, which were 20% or lower. But you also just look at what the government actually provides the citizens. The government's not active in people's lives. And so, again, if you're looking at what would a real Haitian solution look like, that's what you want to see is the majority of the population actually being included and listened to and incorporated into the state apparatus in order to actually have a representative government. And I think one real big concern is that the presence of foreign military troops makes that process much less likely. Rather, it would be there to basically provide the Band-Aid to continue with business as usual. And I think, you know, you, you talk to folks in Haiti, like a solution is not a solution going back three months before the fuel blockade and before cholera reemerged, right? That's not a solution. Uh, that might be a, a temporary reprieve, but that's not a solution. And so, you know, as we're looking at this, I think that's where things need to go if you're going to see that. And I just want to make one other point here, too, because I think there is a, a perception or an assumption as well that, well, this is a situation in Haiti and the U.S. must act to help that situation. Now, the other assumption there is that the U.S. is not actively engaged in this situation today right. already. And they are politically, diplomatically, economically, any number of ways. Right. And so I think. U.S. action is necessary, but moving in a different direction, not action to intervene further, but action to remove themselves from the situation because their intervention is actively destabilizing the situation, right? It is making that path forward less likely. And so it is important to call on the U.S. to act, but they need to act in a very different way than what they're discussing right now. I'm going to end it right there. We've been speaking with Jake Johnston, Senior Research Associate at the Center for Economic and Policy Research and lead author for CEPR's Haiti Relief and Reconstruction Watch blog. Please do find their work at net. Thank you so much, Jake Johnston, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure. You'd have to read the news fairly closely to know about the Supreme Court case about Harvard, where the college is defending its ability to consider race as a factor among many in admissions in an effort to address decades in which simply being black was enough to deny you admission. The group called Students for Fair Admissions, Inc., founded by white male conservative activist Ed Bloom, sued Harvard on the pretense that its effort to end discrimination against African-Americans was discriminating against Asian-Americans. Two lower courts ruled for Harvard on all counts, rejecting SFFA's arguments, 
before the Supreme Court accepted the case. Jeannie Park is founding president of the Asian American Journalists Association in New York, and she's co-founder of the Coalition for a Diverse Harvard, advocating for diversity and inclusion in higher education. She joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Jeannie Park. Thank you so much for having me here, Janine. Well, let's just be a little basic. Can you set us up on why there was a presumed need for students for fair admissions and the whole context of this idea that Asian Americans in particular should not just be mad, but should be the most aggrieved by the idea of affirmative action in education? What is the storyline there that you think needs countering? Yes, this narrative that SFFA has set up has been very difficult to counter, but there is so much disinformation out there that I really appreciate this opportunity to talk about it. So the case is brought by someone named Ed Bloom, as you mentioned. He has an organization, but the organization, we don't even really know how many members there are. None of the plaintiffs in this case have ever been named. They did not testify in court. They are all a complete mystery. But what's important to know is that he has been bringing cases against affirmative action and against race-conscious policies for decades. This is a mission of his, but not just his. It is a mission of the right wing. So he first went after it in a big way with a case called Fisher versus University of Texas 10 years ago, where he sued the University of Texas with a white plaintiff. He lost, he got all the way to the Supreme Court and essentially lost twice. And he then decided that he might have a more favorable case if he used Asian American plaintiffs. So he went advertising for Asian Americans who didn't get into Harvard and UNC because he's also suing UNC right now. That case is also at the Supreme Court. And he is really preying on a lot of stereotypes, a lot of model minority stereotypes about how Asian Americans get really high test scores and grades and trying to essentially use them as a wedge to divide communities of color and to reduce equity opportunities for all people of color. And as an Asian American, I completely reject this attempt, as do many Asian Americans, most Asian Americans in this country. So this is the fight that we're in. I think it's so important to realize that Ed Bloom didn't have folks knock down his door and say, we feel that we were unfairly treated on the basis of our race in terms of admission to colleges. In other words, the idea that it isn't that there's a large body of harmed people who are seeking redress, but instead a lawyer who is seeking something else. I just feel that that is not necessarily the idea that you would get from news media coverage. Yes, I think people have this idea that it's some big class action lawsuit. And in fact, it's not. In fact, 
there's a videotape of him speaking to, I believe, a Chinese-American group in Houston. And he says, you know, I failed with Fisher versus University of Texas. And so I, quote, needed Asian plaintiffs. You know, he actively goes out and seeks people from a certain race. And, you know, in the original trial in the suit against Harvard, he had access to, he and his team, 150,000 admissions cases, the data from 150,000 cases and actual files from hundreds of actual admissions cases. They did not introduce a single file or a single case where they pointed to discrimination. So this is all very manufactured. Again, like there is a stereotype out there, and so people have bought into it. And so when he feeds this information, people tend to believe it. But the thing is, all along, this case was never about defending Asian Americans, never. In his case that he filed, the remedy that he sought was not to say, you know, make sure the admissions offices had more Asian American admissions officers or to make sure that the admissions office had training in implicit bias or how do you counter implicit bias against Asian Americans. Nothing that was specifically about Asian Americans. All he asked for was that he wanted the admissions process to be completely devoid of race. He did not want admissions officers to even know the race of any student who applied. And can you imagine how that would work? That would mean that, I mean, essentially, you wouldn't be able to know the student's name. And let's say a student was the head of the Black Students Association at their high school or the Chinese Students Association at their high school. Or let's say they worked on behalf of immigrant rights or wanted to talk about the struggles of their community of color or their family's immigration story. You wouldn't be able to do that as a student. And so that would mean that students could not bring their whole self to the admissions process. Let me ask you, it's such a deep narrative conversation And news media aren't good at having it. You know, the very thing that you're talking about, about people being able to bring their whole selves to conversations, it's not the kind of thing that news media are great at representing. And I just just want to ask you, you know, if you were trying to talk in a positive way to reporters who were trying to present the idea of affirmative action in higher education and elsewhere, but just the whole idea of seeing the Ed Blooms for what they are and looking towards a positive future. Are there things that you would ask reporters to do or to not do or stories you'd like them to cover or things you'd like them to uh, avoid? Any thoughts about media? Well, I think certainly the media needs to do a better job of covering the solidarity among Asian Americans and other communities of color in standing against this lawsuit and Mm -hmm. in standing against all sorts of efforts to hold back racial justice efforts. And, you know, this is very much an effort to roll back rights, as we've seen over and over again with the Supreme Court. And affirmative action has been legal and affirmed by the court numerous times for more than four decades. And so this is, again, a retrenchment, a rolling back. And I think it's important also for the media to 
not just take things that are fed to them by one side and not dig deeper into seeing what is misinformation versus what is is truth. And I have to say another part of the story that's been really overlooked by the media is who is behind this lawsuit. So a piece that I and my colleague Kristen Penner, who also works for the African American Policy Forum, wrote recently kind of exposes what's behind the lawsuit or who's behind the lawsuit. So Ed Bloom has made himself out to be the face of this effort, and the media has really covered him as being sort of like a, quote, one-man band, a one-man legal factory, you know, just a guy who's doing this in his living room. In fact, he's been funded with millions of dollars from the far right, and he's been supported by lawyers and think tanks and media that are also connected to other fights. He also is responsible for the gutting of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which has led to all this attempted voter suppression. That happened, I believe, in in 2013. And so he is connected to a lot of concerted efforts to take back the rights of people of color or, or just to not even allow them to fully enjoy the rights that they were promised in the first place. And By attacking voting rights, it leaves us with no way even to address the other attacks, because if we don't have representation in our government, we then don't have representation on the Supreme Court, or you see the direction in which the Supreme Court has turned. So I think it's it's digging deeper into understanding that a lot of these fights are connected, these fights for climate justice, environmental justice. LGBTQ plus rights, you know, rights for people of color and movements for racial justice, reproductive rights, immigrant rights. It is a very connected conservative movement. And if we're not aware of that, we can't fight it properly and fiercely as we need to. We've been speaking with Jeannie Park, founding president of the Asian American Journalists Association in New York and co-founder of the Coalition for a Diverse Harvard. Thank you so much, Jeannie Park, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much, Jeannie, and I really appreciate this time. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The website is also the place to sign up for FAIR's newsletter, Extra. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.